we're going to continue with uh, the 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 character of God and the communicable attributes. We didn't finish last week, so we'll, we'll finish that. <clears throat> but I just want to share real quickly. I, I never try to, I never try to like bring light on me per se. You know what I'm saying? But I was remembering as we're driving over here, because last year, this very very day, we, me and Norma were in the car. But she wasn't driving me to church, but she was driving me to Odessa Regional Hospital where I was going to be admitted. And less than 24 hours later, I was going to be in the intensive care unit. And um, I was going to experience probably one of the worst times in my life that I've ever experienced. And, and that was with this virus. And, and it hit me and it hit me hard. So today, driving over here, just was really grateful that I'm not driving to the hospital, I'm driving to church. And so, uh, you know, I think that it's those things that God wants us to remain thankful, right? Not the next day or the next week, but the year after that and the year after that. And that's what he told the the Egypt, or the Israelites when he pulled them out of Egypt, right? He gave them a commandment, teach it to your children that they would remember it from generation to generation and that they would not be forgetful of it because you remember the goodness of God and the mercy, which that's what came upon my life, right? Goodness, mercy, grace, and everything else. And so, I, you know, I want to share it because today it might not be you, it's me, right? But tomorrow it might be something you're remembering that God did for you. And so I think that every opportunity that we have, we can glorify God by saying, I'm thankful and I'm grateful for what God did to me. And we make it known right to everyone else. So the character of God, the communicable attributes, right? Our objective to, to find out how God is like us in his being. And in these communicable attributes, the ones that he shares with us, how is he and how are we to display these? We started yet, uh, last week, we weren't finished, so we are continuing. So I guess this would be the part two with the moral attributes, the moral attributes, meaning uh, ones that are uh, good, which ones are right, which ones are wrong, which ones are not. And we're going to start this week with the attribute of of love. The attribute of love and we'll define that as God's God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. And understand this love as self-giving for the benefit of others. This attribute of God shows that it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to number one on your outline in order to bring about blessing or good for others. in order to bring about good or blessing for others. Now, this is not necessarily, this is the, the love of God, his attribute that he shows, right? You, you can look at the, there's diff, four different types of love, but we're not looking at those today, but we're looking at the love of God. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 8 says that he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, of course, I mean, real plain and simple right there, God is love. And so if we don't love, then we don't know God. And of course, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, when we didn't deserve it, he 
sent his son to die for us when we were still lost in our trespasses. And so it raises a question that I wanted to bring up. Does God love everybody the same? Because there's a lot of talk about this love of God. And I hear a lot of times people say God loves everybody and we are all God's children. And so I just want to cover on that a little bit because I think that it's important for us to understand, right? We got to understand this God. We have to understand his attributes. We have to understand his characteristics if we're going to follow him right if we're going to be able to obey or try to understand him somewhat when things are happening in our life so does god love everyone the same and the answer would prob would be no he doesn't love everybody the same okay there's different types of love okay there is what one that would be called god's uh, benevolent love okay god's benevolent love it means it's a good love it's uh a lot of places that are charities will have something called a benevolence fund. Churches will have a benevolence fund. Benevolent means good, right? There's certain types of cancers that one is malignant, that's bad. The benevolent cancer, it's good. It's and I mean, it's not good that you have it, right? But it means it's not going to invade your body, right? So it's the better one. It's good. God's benevolent love for people, that is goes to every single person in the universe. That's just his goodness when you wake up because God could have just destroyed us in our sleep, right? The, every breath that we take, everybody experiences that, not just the people of God. That's the benevolent love. Then there is a beneficent love, okay? That's where we get the word benef benefit, right? We um, there's something that we get from it. That's the kind of love that everybody receives as well. Everyone, when the sun rises up, we benefit from that heat. We benefit from the rain that falls down, right? Whether you are uh, a son of God or you're not, everybody receives of that. But then there is a superior love. There is an unconditional love that is above all of those that is not shared by every individual in this world. It is only shared by those who belong to God. And that is a distinction that we need to make because when we minister to a lot of people, you hear a lot of individuals go up to a person and say, God loves you and he's not mad at you. Well, first of all, we don't know that person's condition or state with the Lord Jesus Christ. So is it necessarily proper to tell them that God loves them and without putting some context and some explanation to it? You understand what I'm saying? Because we just tell them that, let's just say it's a, it's a big time drug addict or a very promiscuous woman. And so she thinks, well, God loves me. He's not mad at me. Everything's okay. Let me continue with this course of life that I'm on. So it's very important to distinguish this when we minister because God doesn't love everyone the same. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on those that are not grafted into the family of God. So then that would mean that God actually, in a sense, he is angry with you, right? And so it's good to understand this. Now, does God love everyone? Yes, it's part of his creation, but it's different than it's part of his children, his family, because the creation, they're not in Christ. They're still going to perish eternally in damnation. But those who belong to him, they're going to be eternally saved. That's, there, that's the difference right there. He loves us so much that that sin no more is going to be counted upon us, but it was put upon uh, his son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is how you make the distinction in that. 
Now, it's real important for me to say that when we know these things, it's not so that we go shove people and beat them down with it. We have to be very careful when we minister the Word of God. We have to be very tender. We have to be very compassionate. And it's okay. I understand people when they want to go to talk to everyone and say, God doesn't love you or God loves you. He's not mad at you. But see, it's deeper than that. You have to take time to sit down with an individual and have a good conversation. And you also want to be careful to not bring any kind of offense, any kind of harshness, right? If the word of God offends, let the word of God do it. But we don't want to be the ones doing the offending. It's very important because not only is that going to be charged on our account, but you can push people away and make them harder. So this is very important when we come to uh, talk to people about God, even if it's people in Christ, because sometimes we have to speak the truth. And if we do love them, we have to tell them that this is something that needs to be addressed, but it has to come with compassion as well. So this love of God that he is, uh, we imitate this attribute of God, uh, first by loving God in return and second by loving others in imitation of the way that God loves them. Of course, Matthew 22, Jesus said, I, I give you a new commandment, two new commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the most amazing facts in all scripture that just as God loves or just as God's love involves his giving of himself to make us happy, so then we can in return give of ourselves and actually bring joy to God's heart. Okay, because that's what God did. He, he, he gave himself on the cross so that we can enjoy, but in turn, we want to reciprocate, give that love back in return to him by bringing joy. That bring us, brings us to the next uh, attribute, which is mercy, grace, and patience. Now, we listed those three together because they're often mentioned together in Scripture. They often always go together. So they're seen as separate, but they are... Uh, for today, we're going to put them together. The mercy of God would be God's goodness toward those in misery and in distress. The grace of God would mean that God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And we're, most of us are very familiar with these terms. But as a matter of fact, grace goes even deeper, that grace is not just something that God gives us or doesn't give us that we deserve, but grace also is an empowerment for us to do everything that we're required of by God. It's an empowerment as well. Now, patience is God's goodness in withholding the withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. That's what God was with us, right? He was merciful, and that is what God is in that uh, benevolent and beneficial love is that they should be killed in their sleep as we all should, but we don't because his mercy is there and he's patient and he's patient for the fact that he desires for men to come to repentance. He desires for men to come to him. He's not like us. We get upset 
rather very quickly and we're ready to do something and put an end to things right away. That's not necessarily God. I mean, he's long suffering and he continues to have this patience. Psalm 103 verse 8 says the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He's merciful. He's gracious. You see the three characteristics. He is slow to anger. That means he is patience and abounding in mercy. The word of God says that God desires mercy over judgment. He'd rather be merciful to a soul than to judge them, right? But make no mistake about it. He will judge when he has to judge, but he is very merciful. I believe that God is being merciful upon America right now, give him, giving them a chance to get right with God. And But eventually he slams the gavel and judgment comes. Now for us, we demonstrate that mercy, that grace, and that patience. We share that kind of attribute with others Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Forgiveness is a type of mercy, right? People harm us and we're merciful against them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Okay, that is grace. That is being, that is not giving people what they deserve. This goes back to knowing how to minister to people. Okay, because we can't just go to people and you see a lot of evangelists on the street corners and they say, you're going to hell and because you're doing this and they have signs up. And many of you know Westboro Baptist Church, they stand on the street corners with signs that say homosexuals need to die, right? And they call them words that we probably shouldn't be calling people because they don't understand this love of God. They kind of just hang on on the nail of truth, but they become very rigid. And all they do is stir up people's souls. They create a more hardness of heart. We have to be gentle. We have to be, as Colossians says, our speech has to be seasoned with grace. It has to be very graceful that we may know how to answer each one because again, if the Holy Spirit of God is speaking through us when we're ministering to somebody, then you have to know that the Holy Spirit of God is gentle. The Holy Spirit of God is peaceful. By all means, the Holy Spirit can admonish, the Holy Spirit can speak truth, but let that come by His guidance and not ours, right? So this is these are things that we put together and we have to notice these if we want to be effective. For the kingdom of God. Now, if we want to be ineffective, then it doesn't matter. Then go ahead. But if we care to be effective, which I would say that we are, because that is why we're here, right? Let me figure out how to do this uh, that, that we're called to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Again, patience. It's hard. That's probably one of the things that we all struggle with is that patience. It's something that that we just don't have real quickly. But Galatians chapter five tells us that it's one of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, long suffering and self-control. How do you bear that fruit? It's by abiding in Jesus Christ. It's by walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. As a matter of fact, the other, the opposite of of uh, not being patient shows that it is a fruit of 
our carnality. So then that's what we're operating in, the carnal. So it's very easy for us to say, okay, if I'm not being patient, then I'm not really necessarily abiding in Christ. I'm not walking in the Spirit, okay? So then it says, then I need to get back on track. But we're called to be patient. We're called to be patient with the people out there in the world. We're called to be patient with those with the brethren that sometimes they stumble, sometimes they fall, and more often than others, we have to be patient. Always remembering, Scripture says, that us, we, at one time, were there at that same spot, right? God was patient with us. God was merciful with us. So because of it, we want to be patient with others. And that's how we share this attribute of mercy, grace, and patience with the Lord God. The next one is holiness. That's one that's not very, it's not very well addressed in today's Christianity. Nobody addresses so much holiness. And part of it may have, may be because years back, they kind of took holiness to an extreme, just like people have done with truth. They use it as a nail that they hang on. And so now everything just has to be overly holy and overly righteous. And now it's something that's just external. It's not something that is of the heart. I've talked about the movie Footloose, right? The daughter liked to dance and there's nothing wrong with dancing. And can we dance? Absolutely, we can dance. But her dad was a preacher and said, that's actually it's a sin and it's of the devil. So she would sneak around and, and dance and that's all that they were doing. And it goes to show the hardness that it creates. So overbearing on anything, if we're too truthful, if we are too easy on love with people, if we are too easy on all of these attributes, it creates rebellion in the heart of the person that we're talking to. That's all that it does. So we have to be very careful once again. But God's holiness is number two in your outline, means to be set apart from that which is common. Separated and devoted. That's what holiness means. It means to be set apart. It means to be uh, different. Separated and devoted. Exodus chapter 26 verse 33 says, then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So if you know the setup in the temple, there was the, the, uh, the tabernacle where you would go in. And then there was the holy of holies. That was where the Ark of the Tabernacle went in there. And there was only one person that could go in there. And that was the high priest. No one else could enter in there or they would die. So there was a big veil. And theologians say that that veil was not just like a curtain that we would hang in our living room. But that veil was actually known to be about 10 to 12 inches thick. That's how thick it was. And so when you think about the fact that Jesus was crucified and there was an earthquake. And it says that the veil ripped from the bottom to the top. Imagine that that wasn't like coincidence because this this is thick. And if you've ever tried to rip cloth, if it's a thin cloth, it's real easy. But imagine something that's 10 to 12 inches thick. I mean, you got to be really powerful to rip that apart. So, you know, that was an act of God that happened right there. But the fact that it was separated God was separated. I can't be defiled with all of these other things, but I have to be in my own place. That was what was special about the Ark of the uh, tab Tabernacle. And it shows God's holiness. 
God's holiness provides the pattern for his people to imitate in the separation from evil and sin and to a life separated in devotion to God. Now on our part, the way we share this attribute, Levit Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, it says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but he called us in holiness. To be holiness. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that said, Come out from among them. He was quoting from the Old Testament, but he said, Come out from among them and be separate. Come out from among the world because the world is defiled. The world is polluted, but God is holy. So come out from among them and be separate. Be holy. Be set apart. So you're set apart from the evil, from the sin, and you're now committed and devoted to God and only to Him. That's what it means to be holy. It doesn't mean to wear long skirts or to have long hair, or to men to shave your, 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 your facial hair. It doesn't mean to not wear makeup. It doesn't mean to not dress a certain way. But what it means is that your heart is separated unto God. I don't want to partake in things like these because they don't please God. I'm not going to watch that kind of a movie. I don't know how many Christians I know that still watch horror movies. How is that going to glorify God? If the Bible says there's no fellowship between light and darkness, and what they're doing is they're inviting, they're opening up an area of darkness into their souls that basically just brings more chaos. Does a Christian have the liberty to watch a horror movie? Yeah, we do. We have liberty in Christ. But Paul also said all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. We have to be careful with what it is that we're engaging in because in everything we want to be holy. We share that characteristic with God. The next one is peace, or you could call it order. God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder, yet he is, number three on your outline, continually active in well-ordered, fully controlled actions. God is a God of order, and he is not uh, at all involved with confusion. And he does this in every action and he has control. Because someone can say, well, then if God is a God of peace and there is war, then is he just going to sit back? And is he just going to not do anything about it? That's not what he what it means, because God is going to act well ordered and fully controlled in that action that he needs to take place, even in the midst of war. There was a lot of war in the Old Testament. But everything always happens from God's perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So we know that God is a God of peace. God is a God of order. But on our part, we share that characteristic with God because we're called to live peaceably with all men. Now you notice that it says, as much as depends on you. Because we do have the control if we want to be uh, peaceful with people. 
Again, are we operating in the spirit or are we operating in the flesh, which would be the carnality, the carnal mind? So as much as depends on us. So that would say that we have a choice. And that choice primarily would be to draw near to God so that then He can prevail even in our actions because the Spirit of God is the one who leads us and guides us. Now the next attribute is God's righteousness and justice. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is Himself Number four in your outline, the final standard of what is right. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. That's what keeps us, you and I, as Christians. His righteousness. He loves it. And His countenance beholds the upright. Those who are walking rightly with God, we see God's face. And one might ask, how do we determine what is right or wrong? I mean, according to who? Right, because you can say, no, this is the standard, and I can say this is the standard, and that's actually what, what is happening in the world today. This is the truth. No, this is the truth. Well, for you and I as Christians, the answer would be that whatever conforms to God's moral character is right, for He is the final standard. Whatever conforms to His Word, that's the final standard. Again, because today people will say it's okay for two people of the same gender to marry, or if somebody wants to change their sex, it's all right. Let them. According to what? Your standard of truth? No. I'm going according to the standard of the truth of Scripture, and Scripture says that that's not valid, that doesn't work, so it's according to God's moral character. Because that's the standard. This is the standard for us as Christians. Now, if you follow a church, as the one I talked about on Sunday, that called themselves progressive Christians, that said that this, this word is not necessarily the word of God, and that it is fallible, it has error in it, then you can't trust that. You have to disregard them, right? We call them fools. But this is the final standard of truth, whether I like it or not, whether the consequences are in my favor or not, this is the final standard of truth, regardless of what America says, regardless of what uh, the Jews would say, regardless of what anybody says, this is the final standard of truth. Matthew chapter 6 tells you and I, if we're going to share that, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all things shall be added unto you. Seek after the kingdom of God. Seek after all the things that are right, and good. Seek after that. Follow after it. Don't follow after other things that necessarily don't matter, but the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the things that are just, the things that are, that are good. How can I please you, God? Then it says that these things shall be added to you. Now, if you look that up in the Greek, uh, shall be added is a word where we get our English word for prosthetic. Now, you know, when a prosthetic comes into play is we have a limb, something happened, we lost a limb or, or whatever the case is, they give us a prosthetic. 
That prosthetic does just about everything that our natural limb did, but it's not our limb. That's what God does in our lives. Sometimes we want what we want, but God says, I'm not going to give you what you want, but I'm going to give you something that is pretty close to it. It's just about going to do the same thing, but it's not the thing that you want. He prosthetically gives us that which we need in life. But that only happens when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not when we seek last, but when we seek first. The next attribute is jealousy. Now, this can be a very controversial one. This is one that the secular world uses. Oh, you serve a jealous God? What kind of a God is that that's jealous? Again, they talk like that. They speak foolishly because they don't understand the fullness of who God is. But God's jealousy means that God, uh, number five, is continually, he continually seeks to promote his own honor. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God writing in these Ten Commandments talking about idols. says, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, I think we're very familiar with jealousy as people. People sometimes have trouble thinking that jealousy is a desirable um, attribute in God. This is because jealousy for our own honor as human beings is almost always wrong. It is not wrong for God to seek his own honor, however, for he deserves it fully. We know jealousy. We get jealous of, maybe when we were younger, maybe we're not jealous now, but when we were younger, we get jealous of your boyfriend, of your girlfriend. Sometimes we get jealous. Uh, uh, some people still struggle with it, with their spouses. Why? I, I, I want that honor for myself, right? I don't want any individual speaking to the person that I love or looking at them. So I'm jealous because that honor belongs to me. So we relate to that. But what happens is that it goes, it crosses the line. Because there is a jealousy that is okay, right? It just demonstrates that there is an affection. But when it crosses the line, when it becomes that fatal attraction or when it becomes that just family violence type stuff, it's definitely not good. But that honor belongs to God. That's why he goes as far as to say, I don't want you to have any idols. There's nothing that you could make that would even compare to me because I am way greater than that. So he says, I'm a, I'm a jealous God because that honor that you're using to give to something that's gold or silver or shiny or big or small, that honor belongs to me. Yeah, that could also be a job, again, a career. I talk about that a lot. It could even be our little ones. And we can begin to uh, idolize them. And it's a dangerous thing because God says, I'm a jealous God that belongs to me. Now, this is where people who don't understand God can say that God is narcissistic. God's just all about him. Well, we all know, right? It is all about God. It's not about us. He created us. But see, we know that it's not necessarily in the sense that they see it because God is a good God. God doesn't cause us to follow him as a slave, but we call ourselves bond servants, which means we're slaves out of free will. I desire to be a slave, and he's my master. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, 
Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. It has a meaning of being deeply committed to seeking the honor or welfare of someone, whether oneself or someone else. Paul is concerned for these Corinthians and he's saying, I'm jealous for you because there was other ministers, other preachers that were trying to turn them away from the truth. They were trying to give them lies. They were trying to teach them contrary to what Paul was teaching. So he says, I'm jealous for you. Because I betrothed you to one husband, not to myself, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to present you to him as a chaste virgin. Not defiled by all of this other foolishness that they're spreading around out there. So that jealousy for us that we share with God, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a concern for brethren. Kind of like what I shared last week about the, the messages that don't line up with ours. Uh, we're jealous when it comes to the things of God. I want to follow God and I want to hear the, the truth of God, the reality of God. I don't want to hear anything else that glorifies anything else. I'm jealous for the truth of God. I desire that. The Bible would call that zeal. The, the psalmist said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's that zeal. I just want to follow after you. The next characteristic is wrath. There's another one that is not really addressed in today's Christianity. God's wrath means that he, number six, intensely hates all sin with a fierce anger. God's wrath, it means that he intensely hates all sin with a fierce anger. Now, this goes back to the very beginning of what I said. Does God love everyone? Is it okay to just walk up to anyone and tell them God loves you? God is not mad at you. Well, this person is, is operating in grave sin. They're fornicators. They're idolaters. They are drunkards. They are all of the above. Then that would say their sin is still upon them. So that would say that the wrath of God abide, abides upon them. So that's anger if it means that he intensely hates all sin with a fierce anger. God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character. Then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. John chapter 3 Verse 36 says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Now, hopefully we understand this. If we didn't understand it, we understand it a little bit more. It, uh, ministering to a person is more complex than just saying God loves you. See, that's the easy way of ministering to people. Hey, God loves you. He's not mad at you. Or, the, uh, or just telling somebody, you're going to go to hell and you're going to rot in hell. Both of them are wrong, but it's engaging with an individual, finding out a little bit about them, talking to them, seeing who they are, sharing who you are, and then bringing the truth and everything else about God. And of course, sealing it all in with prayer, standing back and saying, God, you do what only you can do.
As with other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise. It may not immediately appear to us how this can be done, since wrath seems to be such a negative concept. Viewed alone, it would arouse only fear and dread. Okay, if we just talk about wrath by itself, yeah, everybody's going to be scared of God, and they're going to dread Him. Yet it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if He were a God that did not hate sin. Have you ever thought about that? What if God didn't hate sin? What kind of a God would it be? You think this world is bad right now? It'd be really bad. He would then be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship. For sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not be. It is in fact a virtue to hate evil and sin. And we rightly imitate this attribute of God when we feel hatred against great evil, injustice, and sin. That's our calling. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this is talking about the Messiah that, that came, Jesus Christ, he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. Lawlessness leads to sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. That means hate what is evil. Cling to that what is good. And again, again, as Christians, we should hate sin. I think we all have a loved one that we have lost because of an illness, because of car wrecks, because of whatever it may have been. Just thinking about that should cause us to hate sin and the, because the result, the fact that they're gone is a result of sin. Sin means death was brought into the world. That thing caused our loved one to die. We should hate it. It's no different than if somebody purposely murdered one of our loved ones, are we going to love that individual and just be okay with them? There's going to be an animosity there. Well, that sin didn't necessarily, or that, uh, that sin, that's what caused our Lord that we say we love Him to go to the cross. So because of it, that should be our enemy, which it is our enemy, but we should recognize it as an enemy. We should hate sin. Does that mean we're going to be perfect and we're not going to sin? No, we are going to sin. Right? We sin like sooner than we wish that we would. That's why Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, the things that I want to do, I don't do them. The things that I want to do or that I don't, those I do. Who can deliver me from this body of death? The problem is right here in our flesh that says, Hey, it, it's what pulls us. It's what sways us. It has more power and influence on us than what we think. That's why we need to be walking according to the Spirit of God to hate this sin. Now, again, in this hating of sin, we have to be very careful because when we approach people, we can, I mean, we can push people away and not have no friends. And we can have that because we did it to ourselves because we're just being obnoxious. Or we can push people away and have no friends because we're simply just demonstrating the righteousness of Christ. Because guess what? Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. 
And many of you know that when you, when you really, if you're just walking with, if you're just straddling the fence with God, if you're just kind of just taking it easy, sitting on the sidelines, you're still going to have many friends. You're still going to have people following you. But when you are truly following the Lord God, when you have made a decision and you're radically following Him, guess what? Those friends are going to start to fall out of formation. They're going to be far. They're going to be few. That's the truth of the gospel. And so a lot of times you begin to wonder, why am I so light? Because Jesus said, woe to you when men speak well of you. I mean, it's, a, it's things that the Lord himself talked about because not everybody is excited when it comes to the things of God. Oh, here, I, I don't even, I personally know I have friends that I've never even said a word of God to them, but they heard about me. So when they see me in town, guess what they do? They turn the corner quick. At the grocery store, they turn the aisle real quick. Why? Because they, they there's no fellowship in light with darkness. So it's sad to say we were friends at one time, but now, and as a matter of fact, I asked, I asked uh, one time a question, how many of you have enemies? Now, most people didn't raise their hands because in Christ, it's right for us to say, I don't have any enemies. I get along with everybody, right? So we don't, we don't want to have enemies, right? Because we want to look like the righteous Christian. But as a matter of fact, the Bible would show us that anybody that is not in Christ, then they would be, in a sense, antichrist. Because you're either for Christ or you're anti. You're for God or against God. So at that moment, that would classify them spiritually as an enemy. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to walk around with a switchblade or you have to pull out a gun on them or you have to watch your back. But spiritually, spiritually, you do have to watch who you hang out with. And if they're not of God, then you definitely don't want to give them all your time and attention because all they're doing is feeding um, something that is not good into you. Again, it goes back to the concept of not being unequal or being equally yoked. That doesn't just apply to marriages and relationships as far as a, a male and a female, but it applies to our business relations. It applies to our friends and everything as well and the like. All of these attributes are important because if God has them, then he expects us to, to share them with him, whether it's holiness, whether it is God's wrath. Now, we don't practice wrath uh, in that sense against anybody else, right? Because we don't repay evil for evil. But it's things that we you know, really think about. I want to share these attributes with God, but I want to do them to the best of my ability. If we're serious with God, not if we're not playing games with God, because there's some people who just want to sit in church and they just want to hit, hit and miss here and there. But I'm talking about the person who says, look, I, I, I made a decision to follow God. I want to be pleasing to him with all of my heart. OK, that's the main important thing there. How can you transform me more into your glory, Lord? I want to be conformed into your image. I don't want to stay looking like, you know, Adam all my life. I don't want to stay looking like Joe or, or, or Vanessa, right? Or Norma. I want to continue to change into the glory of Jesus Christ so that I can look like him, so that I can be pleasing, knowing that at the same time, great are my rewards in heaven that are waiting for me. So follow this some questions for personal application. There's one for every single attribute. Now, I don't know if you necessarily kind of go home and, and ponder these, but I would highly encourage it because some of these questions are very challenging. And see, the thing is, is that we're not called to be uh, necessarily 
it's not important that we answer them here, but we have to be truthful with ourselves before the sight of God. Lord, I'm really not being a peaceful person. Or I'm, being, uh, I'm, not, I'm not being a person operating in the knowledge of God or the truthfulness of God or the goodness of God or even the love. God, help me in this area. See, that's the first thing is we have to be honest with God because He already knows. And so if we're trying to justify it, then we can't expect to receive anything from God at that point. Spirituality. Why is God so strongly displeased at carved idols? Even those that are intended to represent Him. I'm doing it for a good reason, God. I made this little image, but it's you, Jesus. But why is he still so displeased at that? Because even this picture that we see a lot, and you see it more in the Catholic, right? This, this uh, European-looking Jesus. And they, they're, all they're doing is try to make a pretty good rendition of what he looked like. It seems to be innocent. But that itself, that's an idol. Nobody knows what he looked like. We really don't know if that looks like him. It was good. Remember I said last week, uh, good intentions are not good enough. They have to be right intentions. And the Bible would say no. And I believe that's why nobody has found the Ark of the Testimony. Nobody knows what Jesus looked like and so many of these other things because people would start to worship him. They would start to fall down before him and say, oh, God, no, God lives inside here. This is where he's at. And so if we want to fall down, let our lives fall down, prostrate before God and live that holy life, live a life of love. But the godly love, the, the, the even love, right? Uh, yes, doing good to all men, but not just simply telling people, well, God loves you because actually sometimes we're doing more damage than we're doing good. What about wisdom? Do you really believe that God is working wisely today in your life, in the world? If you find this difficult to believe at times, what might you do to change your attitude? It's a good question to sit there and think about. How can I change my attitude when it comes to wisdom? What about truthfulness? Why are people in our society, sometimes even Christians, quite careless with regard to the truthfulness in speech? Again, we look for these opportunities. You don't have to just go into every conversation and say, oh, you're wrong there when it comes to God, but you wait to be invited into the conversation. And now they asked me to talk about this. And now, God, help me to, to, to uh, speak your truth, but with a gentleness, seasoned with salt, that they would receive it, right? They may not always receive either way, but at least you know that it wasn't our attitude that offended, but it was just the word of God. What about mercy? If you were to reflect God's mercy more fully, for whom among, among those you know would you show a special care during the next week? I know a brother in Christ that another brother did him wrong probably 20 years ago, and he still holds on to it. Every time he hears his name, he mentions the fact, oh yeah, I remember that guy, he did me wrong. He's, he, uh, I gave him some money to do something and he didn't do it. Where's the mercy? Do you think God does that when him? Oh, I remember him. He used to be a sinner. He used to do this. He used to do that. No, the Bible would say, I know him. He's my son. And we have to let go of things. And it's easy for us to hold on to things. It's very easy. But if we're not honest with ourselves, then we'll continue to walk in that blindness. 
It's happened to me before. People hurt us. And when it hurts, I mean, it does something inside and the enemy's ready to come and use that as a breeding ground to plant seeds of corruption in our lives so that they would grow and choke out the goodness of God. But we can't allow it. We have to be merciful. We have to be forgiving. We have to be all of these things. Everything that comes to God, we have to be equal with it all. Yes, the love. Yes, the truth. Yes, God's wrath. Every single thing. I mean, just think about how we like people talking truth about God to us when we weren't Christians. We didn't like it, huh? I know I didn't. Get away from my face. I don't got nothing to say to you, right? But then God was merciful. See, every day God could have just, he could have taken me out and I could have been in hell. Same thing for us because we're sitting here. But God was patient. He was merciful and he gave us forgiveness. He gave us grace. And that's why we love him. That's why we follow him because he is a good God. That's why God is good because God didn't give us what we deserve. He's not only good because he gives us a car or a house or I got a raise today. No, God is good because he spared my life when he did not have to. All of those questions, I would encourage, I would highly encourage, sit, sit, take some time out, answer them before the Lord. And if they're ones that we struggle in, ask him to help us and he will help us. But let's not think that we don't have our part to do because we also have our part to do. The last question, wrath. Should we love the fact that God is a God of wrath who hates sin? In what ways is it right for us to imitate this wrath? And in what ways is it wrong for us to do? That is a very challenging question right there. Because I know some Christians who they just, boy, they really love the wrath of God. They're not concerned with the love. They're not concerned with the compassion. They're not concerned with other things. But they love the wrath of God. We have to be balanced. Unless we want to be going around like those guys who like to go to the gym and they got really big upper chests and arms, but you look at their legs and they're just like real small. In the spiritual realm, that's what we would appear like. Oh, they're really good when it comes to the wrath of God. But when it comes to the love, the truth, the grace, they, they're no good in that area. Now, God is going to be our judge. He's the one that's going to look at that. And that also is very displeasing to him. Ask those questions to yourself at home sometime this week and see what the Lord would demonstrate to us. And then we could do something about it. The scripture memory passage is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It's the same one from last week. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. We know that God is merciful. He's patient. He's waiting. Even right now, why hasn't the Lord Jesus Christ came back? Because He's waiting for people to repent and come to Him. That is a good God. And thank God that He's not like us, right? God is good and we're not. 
We think we are sometimes, but we have a rude awakening sometimes. Then we close with this hymn. It's a hymn called, O Worship the King. So, O worship the King, all glorious above. O gratefully seeing how, O gratefully seeing His power and His love. Our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O tell of His might, O sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is His path on the wings of the storm. The earth with its store of wonders untold, Almighty, Your power has unfolded of old has established it fast by a changeless decree, and round it has cast like a mantle the sea. Your bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air, it shines in the light. It screams from the hills, it descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In you, in you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O measureless might, ineffable love, while angels delight to him you above. The humbler creation, though feeble their ways, with true adoration shall lisp to your praise. This hymn just gives notion to the fact of all of these attributes that we share. Again, we've made mention that the hymns, they give great glory to God. I wish our modern worship was more prone and postured at glorifying God as these hymns were. I mean, I love some of our modern worship too, but there's nothing like these hymns. Next week, we're going to be continuing with the communicable, communicable attributes, and we're going to be looking at God's attributes of purpose, the things that He does, right, that, that are useful, and how we can share those as well with Him. Uh, let's stand and let's pray. Father, as we look at Your attributes, God, I'm sure that there's one there that every single one of us in this room has not done so well at God. Maybe we're currently not doing so well at it, but, but Father, we come to you and we ask you to help us. So we're, we're able to share this attribute with you, God. Show us how we can use it in a manner that would glorify you to the utmost and the greatest ability, Lord. Because I know when it comes time to be forgiving, when it comes time to be merciful, we don't like it because we feel uh, made less than. It's called humility, God. Your word tells us to be humble. But Lord, may we not regard ourselves as anything in those times, but may, may we regard you as all. That we would be quick to forgive. That we would be gracious. Yes, God, that we would speak the truth. But that we would never, never compromise in another area of your attribute just so that we can be successful in one particular one. 
may our aim be to be great at all of your attributes, God. And it's only then that I believe that we will give you the greatest glory, that you may be pleased, God, that you may look down upon us with joy. God, we are thankful for your mercy, for your grace, for your patience. May you teach us to demonstrate that as well, not just with the brethren, but with the people out there who are lost in hopes, God, that they too may come to this glorious salvation that you have set upon us, God. Father, for that, we thank you all, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.